So we'll, um, we'll, I guess we'll go ahead and get started with the word of prayer and get into our, uh, our topic this morning. So glad to see everyone here and uh, thankful for the pleasant weather we've got in the middle of early August. So, okay, let's pray. I'll let Mr. Mr. Dale come in before we pray. <laughs> okay. Father, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for the chance to gather on the Lord's Day uh, when we can remember that Christ rose from the dead early on the first day of the week. And we get 52 times a year to remember that, at least. And so we're thankful that we can gather as your people. And we pray that as we study the life of one of your saints who's lived before us and has gone to be with you in glory, uh, that we would remember that uh, we are not the first uh, to live on this earth. We're not the first to live through difficult times or to wrestle with uh, hard decisions. And I just thank you that uh, although we are sinners, that, um, that there are people, like it says in Hebrews 11, there are people whose lives we can copy and, and emulate. They're not perfect, but uh, they do set an example for us to, to run our course well. So let's pray this in your name. Amen. Okay, so today we'll be talking about a guy named Thomas Jackson. Um, you'll know him as Stonewall Jackson of the Civil War, but I don't want to really emphasize his military career so much, and so I'm trying to not talk so much about that. We'll certainly get to that, um, but I think his, his story is relevant because of where we are in our own history today with um, kind of a pulling down monuments and um, how we think about Christians who are slave owners and people who fought for the southern state, states during the Civil War, and we're at a time in our own country when I don't think conflict has felt so close and so our country has been so divided perhaps since then that we were during the Civil War. And so I think his story and the story of Christians who lived in his time period is, is very relevant. Um, I also want to say that we're living in an age, I heard a, a podcast not long ago, we're living in an age where heroes have to be tarnished or they can't exist at all. Um, you'll see this in movies, you'll see this in a lot of things. People, um, we love very, very un, inheroic or unheroic age. Uh, people say that uh, we've exchanged the myth of Lincoln the saint, which wasn't quite true, for now Lincoln's the racist. Um, and if you, if you notice movies that you might watch or stories that you might hear, uh, we talk more about someone's flaws than we do about their good character qualities. And, and so I think that it's important that, you know, as a child I grew up in Maryland. I was, you know, born in Dixie, if you want to say that, a southerner by birth. But they... You know, the, these guys, they were, they were interesting, they fascinated me, and they were heroes to me in a sense because they were godly people who lived their lives uh, before God. But I came to realize, obviously, there's, there's some glorification of war, there's glorification of stories. But at the same time, there's a, there's a purpose because people who are heroes, people who that we can look up to, there's something worth copying and there's something worth following, recognizing that they're humans. Because, you know, God gives us Hebrews 11 because... They're worthy of following. And it doesn't get in. When we read the story of, of Abraham in Hebrews 11, it doesn't say, well, he lied about his wife and he did all these bad things and he took Hagar. It says, follow his faith. And while the Bible, obviously, it, it doesn't hide that sin of Abraham's in Genesis, that's not what the New Testament puts forward about Abraham. It's not what, you know, who would expect to find Samson in the book of Hebrews as, a, a, as someone whose faith was worthy of following? And so the Bible puts people, specific people, and names them and says, follow their faith. And while the 19th century tended to overly dramatize and worship great men and women, uh, we're at the opposite end of that. And so I think that maybe a good balance would be in order. I would say that Jackson lived at a time of confusion in both the church and the world. And as we wrestle with the things that he wrestled with, it should remind us that we should be cautious with how we think and talk about other Christians of our day. 
because we really are living in very confusing times. And while some things are very black and white, not the, the means to accomplishing, the, there may be an issue that's black and white, right or wrong, but how to solve that issue, Christians, Christians, Christians can sometimes differ on. And we need to be careful and cautious how we talk about things like that, especially as we talk about other believers. Because the issues may, and the solutions at least, may not always be as clear as we may think. Um, he was a Confederate general for, for only, the only, only two of his life. He lived 39 years, and he was only a general for two years. So to say that that defined his life is, is sort of poor. So 95% of his life, he was not known as Stonewall Jackson. He was known as Tom Fool and Uncle Jack, Old Jack. Um, and uh, I would say also, studying life of a soldier is a bit strange in our time period, but we've been blessed to live in a very long age of peace. And so soldiers don't get much credit or much discussion in times of, of peace. I'm old enough to remember when the Persian Gulf War was, was a thing, and I remember General Schwarzkopf was in the news all the time, and he was a heroic figure. But, you know, who's the current general of the Army? Anybody know that? You know, we don't, we don't know that. And uh, it's because people who've gone before us, and they've had to live in challenging times, uh, we shouldn't dismiss, oh, he was a soldier, so we're not going to, you know, pay attention to him, or why, is his, why does his life matter? You can go to the second slide here. Um, so this is on... on uh, there's a collection of books that belong to Stonewall Jackson that they, they still have. And uh, on the bookshelf, there are three books side by side. And his biographer said these books sort of define his character. So there's many books, but at the center of his bookshelf, there's one. There's a Bible on the left. Uh, the center book is called the Artillerist's Manual. Like, so if you're going to fire a cannon, you need to have this book so you know how to shoot cannon because that's what his skill was in the Army. And on the right is a book called I Will, and it's examples from studying the book of Psalms about resolutions that the Psalms made. I will do this or I will do that. And so... Um, how to have resolutions and resolve to, to be a godly person by reading the book of Psalms. And so they say that it's a man of, of arms, a man of uh, military man surrounded by the tenets of faith. And this is the, the way we, we can think of, of Jackson. Uh, it, there's a quote that says, divine love and personal self-discipline combined in Jackson to create an absolute fearlessness. He could look forward to the next world because he was so constantly aware of its existence. Military genius and religious devotion are not common traits among mankind either military genius or religious devotion are not common. When one individual possesses both seemingly incompatible qualities, he stands alone on a high pedestal that is extraordinary to some and enigmatic to others. A Presbyterian pastor back in his day said to attempt to portray the life of Jackson while leaving out his religious faith would be like trying to describe Switzerland without talking about the Alps. And so he was a deeply, deeply godly religious man, uh, which you, you perhaps would not know if you've only ever seen things on the news or, or just read a little bit. You can go to the next slide. So a little bit of background. He is a Virginian by birth, and the Virginia that he was born into looks different than the Virginia of today because he was born in the western part of Virginia. Um, west Virginia was created during the Civil War, and there's actually a book called West Virginia, the Illegal State. Uh, it's a fascinating book. Uh, while many Virginians went away to fight for what they believed was right, um, those who stayed behind kind of created the legislature and voted themselves out of the state. Um, and so they came back, and it wasn't even they, when they went off the war. They came back, and they weren't even living in the same state. And so he he's uh, he's living in a, a different time and a different place. He's also living a very localized age, not we might think not that different from how Amish experience life today. Your life is very very local, and we may get the news. We know it's going on in Beijing. We know it's going on in Moscow. But their lives are very so. And, and so one of the results of that is your your. Your, your life is very focused on your state more than it is on the nation itself. And so you can see that back in those days, 
when you're wrestling between here's my state's doing this and my country's doing that, what, what do I do? Why, the challenge could be a little harder. Um, we can even see this even more clearly today, I think, as we find tension between states and a national government when states say, we're not going to do this to children, or we're not going to have abortion, and the federal government say, yes, you are. And you're pulled, and you're like, what do we do? Which, you know, what, submit to the authorities. Which authorities am I going to submit to, my governor or my, or my president? And so these, these decisions, we can just whitewash this and say, oh, you know, their side supported slavery, so how could they possibly have done this? But just I would say that these decisions are often more challenging, and we may be facing some of these own hard decisions ourselves in, in times to come. His early life was certainly not one of white privilege, we'll say this. You can uh, stay, there, stay there for now. Uh, he lived, had a life of intense loneliness, so lonely that he wouldn't even discuss it in later years. Um, his father died when he was... Oh, you can, uh, go ahead and the next slide there, slide four. So this is March of 1826. Tom is, is two years old. Uh, the first red date is March 6th. His five-year-old sister dies of typhoid. The second red date is his father dies of typhoid. And the next red date, the, next, the green date, is his youngest sister is born. So his, his mother loses a daughter, a father, and has a child within a space of three weeks. And this is the world he grows up in. His father had been a, an attorney, but he was sort of a gambler and, and also sort of a generous guy, so he always had financial problems. And at his father's death... His mother refuses to take charity from the family, and so she finds this 12-square-foot, single-room house to live in with she and his 5-year-old sister and himself as a 2-year-old and an infant. And she takes in sewing, she teaches school, and she's able to manage things for about three years like that until she gets a proposal of marriage from another man who is not the greatest guy. They they call the second husband, his stepfather, a sort of decayed gentleman. Uh, I guess he had desire to be finery and to, to live a fancy life. He had eight children, all of whom lived everywhere else except for under his own roof. And when he took on these three stepchildren, he didn't want them. He said, oh, you know, these, these stepchildren are the reason that I'm in debt. And at the age of six or younger, Thomas and his younger sister were told by their stepfather that it would maybe be good for them to seek homes elsewhere. His mother's in very uh, poor health much of his life. And uh, at the age of seven, Thomas and his younger sister, Laura, are sent to live with their grandmother about a week's journey away. When his uncle comes for them, they don't want to go. And Thomas goes and hides in the woods because he doesn't want to leave his mother. And uh, finally night comes, and uh, he decides that it's, it, he has to go with his uncle. He fights back to tears. His mother says a hysterical goodbye. And uh, he never forgets that difficult parting from his mother at the age of seven. So he goes, this is the, the summer of when he's seven, about four months later, he gets the news that his mother is dying, and he travels back to see her, and he's with her for about a month before he dies. So by the age of seven, he's lived through the death of his mother and his sister, extreme poverty and deprivation, a hard separation from his mother, a stepfather who didn't want him, and the death of his mother. And this is, this has to define your life. This, you, you, don't, you don't, even if you grow out of that, that sort of childhood does not ever leave you. And he will become somewhat of a social oddity, somewhat of a socially awkward, somebody who keeps to himself a good bit, a lot of because of the trauma of his childhood. And when he's living with his uncle, his uncle takes him in for pragmatic reasons rather than for any actual love that he has for his son, his his nephew, and basically puts him to work at a a mill that he owns. Uh, He does go, after a while, he and his sister are separated. His sister goes to live with his mother's side of the family, and he stays with his father's side of the family. Uh, but the, Tom and Laura will be very, very close because by the time he's 20 or 15, um, he, they're the only siblings left, just the two of them from the whole family. And they maintain a very long correspondence as adults. 
Uh, but then sadly, when the war comes, uh, she stays faithful to the Union, and he fights for the Confederacy, and she despises him, and she won't talk to him again. And uh, when she finds out that he's been killed in battle, uh, she says, well, I'm depressed, but I'd rather know that he's dead than, he, than he's leaving, leading the rebel army. Um, so this is, this is some of the depths of, of challenges. Uh, for a while, he, he goes and lives with a, another family member, but he doesn't like it there, and he runs back to his uncle. They try to convince him to stay with the, with the, the other family member. He says, "My mother." Uh, he says, I ought to, ma'am, but I'm not going to. So he, he goes back and lives with the uncle. When he's, he does have an older brother who only lives to about, be about the age of 20. So when his older brother's 16 and, and, and Thomas is 13, they set off in this basically a really a true Huck Finn experience. They just go down the Mississippi together. They're gone for six or seven months, and they just go on an adventure, and they do various things. And, um, but then they eventually get, both get malaria, and then some kind steamboat captain gives them a, 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 a passage for free back home. But by this time, he's got some kind of ailment that he picks up at this point in time that never really leaves him. And he struggles with poor health for much of his life. He gets a very rudimentary education. Uh, he actually told a little a, a slave who lived on the farm, he said, if you can buy me some pine knots, you know, some knots of pine, that I can burn them at night for light so I can study, then I'll teach you how to write and how to read, which he does. Um, it, it, it doesn't quite work out the way he plans because the little boy learns how to write. He forges a past and escapes to Canada. Um, thankfully, his uncle, his uncle is amused at this, and he's not angered by it. Uh, but he just scrabbles to get a little education here and there. And whatever little schooling he can get, he, he gets that. Um, at the age of 14, he gets to meet uh, a friend named Joe, who is the first one to really give him some experience to the Bible. And he's taken by the scriptures, and he, he finds interest in this. But we don't know that really he becomes a Christian until much later. Um, but he's probably this first, this boy Joe was one of the first to spark a major interest in religion in his life. And he starts going to church, sometimes walking three miles to various churches to get to church. Sometime uh, before he's 17, he starts praying nightly, and his letters to his sister increasingly talk about Almighty God and all wise providence. At some point in life, he'll become, consider becoming a preacher, but he says, because of my lack of education, and I don't speak well in public, um, and I'm not really part of a local church. He didn't really feel like that was the best course for him. Oddly enough, even in spite of his poor education, he gets a job as a school teacher at the age of 17. And then he also gets a job as a county constable at the age of 17. So just kind of a rough, ramshackle, hard scrabble kind of life until he's 17. But he does get enough of an education, and through some, some God, God, God working, he's able to secure an appointment to West Point at the age of 18. Um, West Point, as today, is a highly celebrated school. At that day, it was even more because there were very few universities where you could get a free education and a really, really good education. And so he just he doesn't even get accepted in through the first uh, selection process. The, the guy who is sent in by the congressman to go to West Point, he goes to West Point. He only makes it a day, and he comes home. So Tom says, you know, I want that spot, and he just he travels to D.C. He makes it happen, and he gets to West Point. Um, so you can go up to bump ahead to five. Next slide there. Okay, next next again there. So he's in the class West Point class of 1846. His class will graduate 60 people, 30, 20 of whom will become generals and fight in three wars. So he's a, a, a pretty pretty reputable and noteworthy class. But life is really hard at West Point, and if he didn't have a high work ethic, he wouldn't have made it through. Um, He's a bit of an outcast there. He's shy. He's withdrawn, a little boy from the mountains. He was years ahead of his classmates in many things, but he was years behind them in others. 
and he really sweated when he got to the entrance exam. Um, that he had to solve some fractions on the chalkboard and had said he was anxiously dripping sweat as he was solving fractions, wiping it off like this and like this, and just and this will become a trademark of his when he's nervous or working hard. Uh, the administration kind of have to turn their heads not to, to hide their smiles. They're kind of amused by this country boy who's trying so, so hard to get into West Point. But it's clear that he wants it badly. He gets in just by the skin of his teeth, and um, he's just all business. He doesn't have time for sports, doesn't have time for social life. They say they don't, they don't think he talked to a girl the whole time he was at West Point. He was just, just in, in school. school. Um, but uh, it says that his efforts at the blackboard, even as a later student, were sometimes painful to watch. No matter what proposition was assigned to him to recite on, he would hang to it like a bulldog. And in his mental efforts to overcome the difficulty, great drops of perspiration would fall from his face, even in the coldest of weather. It soon became a proverb with us that whenever old Jack got a difficult proposition at the blackboard, he was certain to flood the entire room. Um, but he was studying 16 hours a day. He was so, his, his work ethic, and you know, we, we, everything is so often handed to us today. But they, if they you knew if you were going to survive or succeed, you had to work for it. And he has a phenomenal work ethic. ethic. Um, sometimes they would turn lights off at a certain time of night. And just before lights were out, he would build up the coal in his coal stove so he could lay on the floor with his book in front of the, the coal stove. And just the glow from the coal would, keep the, would, would be just enough light to study by, even though he was supposed to have the lights out. He barely squeaks through his probationary period, but he does pass January of 1843, and he starts to slowly climb in the ranks. He'll end up graduating 59 students. He'll end up graduating number 17 out of 59, and several people would, would say that if he had one more year, he probably would have been top in his class. Um, he, picks up the, he picks up the nickname of Old Jack because he's old for his age um, in, in life experience and in hardships, um, and he'll do much better at ingesting information than at reciting it which in the long run is more important, right? You know, you're better to take something in the end that you can use than be able to just spit it back out for a test. Uh, that will make it hard when he becomes a teacher later, and we'll, we'll find out later that he goes and teaches at VMI, Virginia Military Institute, and he would memorize a textbook, and that would be his lecture. He would just recite the textbook, and if somebody didn't understand, he would just recite it again. And, you know, that's how he had learned, and so that's how he taught. Um, he becomes impressed with Napoleon's skill as he studies military tactics. And he also learns that you don't have to be a people person to succeed as a military leader. And so that gives him some hope for the future. But they said if it wasn't for his later greatness, his time at West Point would have been forgotten. He was a loner who spent a lot of time studying but never did anything remarkable. Yet out of the 20 generals in his class, he would be the greatest by far as far as the legacy that he left. So by the time he graduates, he's, the Mexican War is, is underway. And he becomes a hero when he rises in the ranks. And we look back today, and, and many people, even President Grant back in his time period, would say the Mexican War was basically provoked by the United States as a land grab. And so it wasn't a very just war. But when you're a soldier and you're coming through West Point, you, you're not really thinking all the politics that are involved. You just know your country's at war, and you go and you fight. Um, so finally, in the Army, he finally starts to feel at home, and he shipped off to Mexico. Nobody knew at that time how vital artillery would be uh, to the U.S. in the, in the Mexican War. Next slide there. So this is him as a soldier in the Mexican War, and uh, in a minute we'll talk about an experience he has. This is a six-pound cannon. They measure cannonballs by the, the size of a the cannonball they would shoot, and um, you can see the cannon there. So when we talk about that in a second, you'll understand what he's talking about. Now, they said that Jackson, as he would exhibit throughout many times in life, um, just dead calm on the battlefield. And even in the Mexican War, they said he was as calm under a hurricane of bullets as he was on dress parade at West Point, just completely fearless or Felt like he just needed to do his duty no matter how much there was risk of, of dying. 
So one ba- battle where he gains uh, some fame is the Battle of Chapultepec on the approach to Mexico City. He sent an advance of the whole army with two of these guns. Uh, when the Mexicans shoot, each gun's pulled by six horses, and when the Mexicans shoot, all 12 horses drop. And so now he's got no way to maneuver his guns other than with his men, and most of his men run and hide. And next thing you know, he's out in front with one gun's disabled, and he's out shooting the other one. And these are all, you know, where you have to get in front of the cannon to load it. You can't even hide behind it because of the way the, the, the cannon operated back then. And he's just out in the whole front of the whole army just firing this, this cannon, and he's told to get back. And he said, well, you know, it would actually be more dangerous if I retreat, so I'm just going to stay out here by myself. Uh, he just happens to be standing the right way. A cannonball goes between his legs as he's standing there, and um, that close brush with death. But finally, another officer goes up to help him, and he has a very important role in this battle, and he becomes a hero. It's in his time in Mexico that he's introduced to another Christian soldier officer, and he really starts to read the Bible. And he, 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 he just, when he wanted to learn something, he, he started at the beginning. So he's in, he's in Mexico, and he said, well, I'll go talk to the Bishop of Mexico. And so he, he, he doesn't know anything about which, which blend of Christianity is the right one. So he's exposed to Catholicism for the first time. And as he talks to the Bishop of Mexico, he's impressed with him. Uh, but he quickly comes to realize this is not the, the true path to, to God through the Catholic faith. Uh, but he does start to uh, have this, this time of experience. And so he gets back to, to New York uh, after the war's over, and he's stationed in New York for two years. At this time, his health will start to fluctuate. And one thing he's known for is some idiosyncrasies and some, maybe even some hypochondria. Um, but he does have, as the modern people try to analyze what he's dealing with, maybe he picked up a bacteria in his trip uh, to uh, down the Mississippi or in Mexico. In Mexico, the U.S. lost more people to yellow fever, which they called El Vomito. Uh, to, uh, they lost more soldiers to that than they did to the Mexicans. And so a lot of these guys will come back with health problems. So he probably did have some underlying health problems, but with some of his eccentricities, uh, he was known to do some strange things. Uh, he felt like his organs weren't functioning, so he would always sit ramrod straight, like he was two right angles, just like straight out and straight, legs straight down. They said he didn't even need to have a back on the chair. He was just always sitting so straight upright. He devised a lot of self-remedies, uh, weird diets. Um, he would always eat his bread unbuttered. It had to be stale bread. He would sit there and watch, and, you know, he'd buy the bread at market, and he'd, he'd watch and his watch until it had been a certain amount of time had passed by, and then he would eat the bread. Um, he only ate egg yolks. He avoided desserts and nuts, various vegetables. I'm not saying this is strange behavior, but in his day, certainly it was a bit odd because of so many other things he would do. He would eat very regular meals. Uh, he felt like one of his arms uh, was heavier than the other, so he'd often put his arm up here to let the blood drain down. And he felt one arm was weaker than the other one, so he was constantly pumping his arm like this, and people would mock him and laugh at him. But he even said that the moment a grain of black pepper touches my tongue, I lose all strength in my right leg. Um, so there's just, you know, I mean, it, it's not much worse than most doctors at that time period, right? You know, they, they don't know what's going on. They don't know how things work. Um, and so you're kind of on your own to figure things out, how to, how to do things. But it's at this time in New York when he uh, is really exposed. Many of the, the people on the Army base were Episcopalian, which in that day, they were still a, a godly evangelical Episcopalians. And uh, that, that was in that church that he was baptized in 1849. For the first time, he was united to a local church, and I think this really started to, uh, to grow. Uh, a later pastor would say of him, no man was ever more honest or earnest to learn the truth. He was sent to Florida, and uh, during his time in Florida, he wasn't crazy about army life, because during, if, you're in the, if, you're in army, so if you're in the army and it's not wartime, it can be pretty boring, especially on the frontier of Florida, where it's mosquitoes and swamps, and, and he just says, you know, I, 
I, this is not what I want in life. And while he's down there, though, where are we at? Slide seven. You can go to slide eight. Um, he becomes aware of a teaching position at VMI, Virginia Military Institute. If you can see there, uh, there's actually a statue of him right in front of the campus, which, of course, is no longer there. Um, it was removed within the past year or two. Um, but uh, duty called him to leave the Army, but not the military. So he will spend his whole life related to the military, even if he's not actively in the Army. He'll spend 10 years here teaching at VMI, and 25% um, of his life, basically. Doesn't have a great reputation as a teacher, but he finally starts to get some stability in life. And one of the most important things is he becomes connected to a very, very good church, and he will grow phenomenally in this time period in Lexington, Virginia. He turns to God because he has nowhere else to go. Any next slide? Okay. Um, he's not the greatest teacher. He's often quoting directly from textbooks. He can't explain things. He just repeats them. Uh, he picks up the nickname of Old Jack and Tom Fool, and he'll be locked, mocked and scorned by his, class, by his teammates um, or his, his students. Um, they said the ungainly form and awkward gait, his large feet, his accent and pronunciation derived from his West Virginia birth. Certain gestures and expressions were the source of much juvenile wit and merriment, and the blackboard offered the cadets a fine field for perpetuation of their jokes. Uh, one guy started caterwauling in class, and Jackson thought to figure out where this cat sound's coming from. Soon, uh, one of the other ones starts barking like a dog, and he peered sternly at the class, and he said, I perceive there's a puppy in the room, and then the sound stopped. But they would play tricks on him when they would go out on the parade ground, and they were supposed to be doing their maneuvers with the cannon. They would pull pins out, some wheels would fall off during, the, during you know, and all kinds of just bad stuff. Um, but he held respect among these guys, and it says that in spite of all this, those who trained under him in artillery got the best education possible that you could have gotten. And a very poignant statement here, it says, as often as not, those young cadets who most ridiculed him became officers who begged to serve under his command in war. They laughed at him in one decade, and they died for him in the next. And so, you know, God uses us with our foibles and with our idiosyncrasies. You know, do, the, do what you can with the gifts God's given you. Don't worry so much about how you come across to other people. You know, if you're socially awkward, just do the best you can with being socially awkward, and, and God can still use you. And again, it sounds strange to say that God used him as a great soldier, and he fought for, quote-unquote, the wrong side. But God has his purposes that we can't, we can't it, it would be foolish for us to figure out, you know, whose side was the right side, you know, was it a good thing or a bad thing for him to do these things? Um, that was what he would, you know, when John the Baptist talked to the Roman soldiers, he said, repent. He didn't say, leave the army. He didn't tell the Roman soldiers they had to leave the army when, um, when they came to, to salvation. So there's nothing inherently evil about being a soldier. Uh, he finds a home in the town of Lexington, and he finds a good church. His, uh, a guy who would later become his brother-in-law said that uh, he gave him the Westminster, uh, the Presbyterian Confession of Faith, Jackson read it carefully and compared its statements with biblical teachings. According to his brother-in-law, he professed himself pleased with everything except predestination and infant baptism. He was able to see in Scripture, he saw in Scripture, teaching on infant baptism, but his repugnance with predestination was long and determined. And there's some question, even though he believes deeply in God's sovereignty, um, there's some question if he ever totally settled with the idea of God electing people to salvation. But joining this church made the most profound change of his life. Slide nine or ten there. Um, and he even will get to a point where he will say that, uh, he said, don't be surprised, he writes to his aunt, if I should, I won't be surprised if I were to die upon a foreign field dressed in ministerial armor, you know, wearing gospel armor, fighting under the banner of the Jesus. What could be more glorious? So if things had gone a little bit differently, he could have been a missionary to Africa instead of a southern Confederate soldier. But um, 
that was not where he was. And he said, but for now, I feel like this is where I'm supposed to be, teaching at VMI. Um, he, uh, someone, this, uh, this friend said, he did not accept his religion. He absorbed it hungrily, constantly, and totally. He had a profound reverence for divine authority. I never knew anyone for re- whose reverence for deity was so all-pervading and who felt so completely his entire dependence on God. He buys and devours the New Testament. He begins tithing. He begins to have a very high view of the Sabbath, or what we would say the Lord's Day. And he will not write letters or receive letters or do anything on Sundays from there on forward. He began to look to his pastor as a mediator in the, in the right human sense. He looked to his pastor as the superior officer in spiritual matters. You know, he would go to him and say, what's the right thing? What do you want me to do? What would, what would the Bible have me do here? So although he's an authoritarian figure in the battlefield in the army, he said, you know, when I'm in church, I'm not in charge. It's, it's, it's the godly leadership God's placed in the church that I go and I submit to. And um, the pastor soon learned that if he gave a request to Jackson, that Jackson would take it as an order. So he had to be very careful about what he requested him to do because he would, you know, oh, pastor said to do it, I'm going to do it. One very amazing and I think convicting story that comes from this time period. So there's a Sunday and the church had several prayer meetings a week. And the pastor was preaching, and he admonished the congregation for not coming to prayer meeting. And then he said, um, every good Presbyterian male should be praying when we have prayer meetings, standing up and praying. And Jackson sought out his friend, and he said, was the pastor serious when he said that? And he said, I'm sure the pastor would say what he believed was true. So Jackson took it to, he went to Jackson, he went to his pastor directly, and he, and he went to the, the parsonage to discuss it. And at Jackson said, um, I, I'm not good at public speaking, and I'm afraid that if I try to pray publicly, I will fall short of success. And then he said, but if you as my pastor think it's my duty to pray publicly, then call on me when you think it's fitting. My personal comfort is not to be consulted in the matter. So the pastor lets a few weeks go by to give him some time to prepare. But then one Tuesday night, he calls on Jackson to pray. And he stood up, his lips pressed together with very intense look on his face, and he shut his eyes and he began to speak. His voice was so halting, his manner so diffident, that words and sentences tumbled forth in utter confusion. So stumbling over his words, not making a good public prayer. The harder he tried, the worse it got. The one man who was there said that his whole effort was painful to everyone who was listening. But then he went on to more prayer meetings, and the pastor didn't call on him again. And he, and he said, uh, are you trying to save me some embarrassment and some pain? And the pastor said, well, sort of. He said, but my comfort and discomfort is not the question. If it is my duty to lead in prayer, then I must persevere in it until I learn to do it right. And I wish you to discard all consideration for my feelings. So if you study with prayer in public or in praying in a gathered church, listen to the words of Jackson. The next time White looked for the major to pray, he performed surprisingly well. And he improved steadily with each opportunity. And eventually it would say, ultimately his prayers were exceedingly edifying, and his spontaneous prayers became fluent and moving. So this is why I say these people are worthy of following. You know, here's a man who said, this is my duty, I need to do it. My comfort isn't, <laughs> I don't feel comfortable, at, my comfort's not the issue. If God wants me to pray, because it's going to benefit the church, I need to pray, and I need you as a pastor to call on me, so I pray. He will go on throughout everything in life, he will become a man of prayer. He will tell one of his friends that um, I have so fixed habit in my mind, I never raise a glass of water to my lips without a moment's asking of God's blessing. I never seal a letter without praying for the person who it's going to. I don't take a letter from the mailbox without sending a prayer heavenward. I don't change my classes from room to room without a minute's prayer for the cadets who go in and out. 
And his sister-in-law said, aren't you afraid you're going to forget to do this? And he said, the habit is so fixed, it's almost like breathing. So it's possible to be that kind of a person in the midst of a busy life if you cultivate that. that I'm not putting myself out there. I'm talking about somebody else who succeeded with this. In spite of this, he would often fall asleep in the church service to his utter embarrassment and to the, to the embarrassment of others because he was sitting ramrod straight in the front pew and his head was on his, his, his chin was on his chest. And they would poke him and prod him. One lady even stuck him with a hat pin and he just wouldn't wake up. And he, he said it was just due to his, his ailments and physical ailments. But 1852, he begins teaching Sunday school. And um, he even goes to visit his sister, who by now lives several hours away in the western part of Virginia. And he's very concerned for her because as he's growing towards Christianity, she's growing further and further towards agnosticism and drifting away from the faith. And it's really concerning. And he writes many letters to her, pleading with her over the years that she would not do that. Uh, but he sees that there is, uh, when he grows infidelity or unbelief, or maybe we would say deconstruction going on, um, he's concerned. He goes to this town. He's handing out various gospel tracts to people. And he's talking to people one-on-one. He even puts together a public talk. And we know he's not a good public speaker. He puts together a public talk called Evidences for Christianity. And he, and he gives these, these talks. Um, the next slide there, slide 11. Um, God brings a blessing into his life in the form of uh, a, one of the pastors, a, a local minister's daughter named Eleanor. Uh, he says to his brother, he's like, I'm not sure what's happened. I used to think of her as so plain, but her face now suddenly seems to me all sweetness. And his friend says, you're in love. That's what's the matter. Um, you know, so this, this guy who's, you know, never had much experience with a whole lot of things, finds out that he's just deeply in love with this girl named Eleanor. Uh, her father is the president of Washington College in Lexington. He's also a Presbyterian minister. And uh, he, he proposes marriage, and she loves him, but her sister, she and her sister are very close to each other, and her sister's kind of jealous of, of Jackson, and so uh, Eleanor breaks off the engagement for a few months, and Jackson is devastated. He, during, says, they said he'd never seen him so devastated. He writes, and he says, I think it probable I will become a missionary and die in a foreign land. You know, when, you're, when your engagement breaks off, you just, what else can I do but go be a missionary somewhere? Um, but finally, Ellie comes back to her senses, and she's like, you know, I love him so much. I'll deal with my, the sister, my, my sister's grief. And in a, in a mark that wasn't unusual for the time, it sounds weird today, when they went off on their honeymoon and her sister went with them. Um, and it, the, the book explains why that was not unusual, um, but uh, it does sound funny to us today, especially with the, the situation that they had. But during this time, he begins to consider his role as a soldier, and he decides from then on he can't just fight in any war, but he's got to be convinced that the war he's fighting in is, is proper and, God, and, and under God's blessing, or he feels like he cannot do it. Um, they're married for 14 months. Ellie gives birth to a, a child who is stillborn, and then she dies an hour later. Go to the next slide there. And this is, of course, devastating for him. But again, his, his trust in God's sovereignty and providence carries him through. A couple quotes there. I don't see the purpose of God in this, but I will try to be submissive, though it breaks my heart. And then he said he will overrule this sad, sad bereavement for good. But then he says, oh, the consolations of religion. I can willingly submit to God if, to anything if God strengthens me. And this is a letter to his sister. Oh, my sister, would that you would have, have him for your God. Uh, this is a, a very grievous time for him, and he actually becomes close to his sister, the one that didn't want him around, and, and, and there's every indication that they probably would have been married uh, after Eleanor died, but that the church laws at the time would not allow you to marry the, the sibling of a deceased spouse, and so they, they end up marrying different people, but he does have this desire to be married again, but it's during this time an interesting facet of his life happens where um, 
back at his church in, in Lexington, his wife is gone, his baby's died, and he's alone again. You know, the, the light comes on and the light goes off. And in his discouragement and depression, he turns to ministry, which is he was something he was good for, good at. And prior to this time, there had been a Sunday school for slaves and slave children in the area, but it had kind of fizzled out and, and died. And he said to his pastor, he said, can we start this back up again? I really think this is important. I w- really want to do this. And he, he starts this black Sunday school at 3 o'clock in the afternoons, and he is known for this throughout the town of Lexington, throughout, um, throughout basically that, that time period. Um, after his first battle at the Battle of Bull Run, when everybody's expecting a letter to see, well, how did the battle go? Then he doesn't even talk about the battle. He said, you know, I forgot to send my monthly, monthly donation for the Sunday school. Here's my $50. And he doesn't even talk about the battle. Um, he's there. When he was there, there would be between 80 and 100 students. In the summers when he would be gone, there would be only about 50. He had about 12 teaching assistants. He was punctual, 3 o'clock start. He would lock the doors at 3 o'clock. If you weren't there, you, didn't, you missed Sunday school that day. Um, he couldn't sing worth anything, but he would start each class singing the first verse of Amazing Grace, and everyone would join in. He led Bible reading, simple lessons, prayer, and study groups. He closed it exactly at 3.45, singing the rest of the verses of Amazing Grace. His, his second wife, Anna, would say, he never looked more earnest than when telling those poor people the story of the cross. And so that raises the question, like, how do you, as a Confederate soldier fighting supposedly to, to keep slavery alive, um, his biography says, in Jackson's mind, slaves were children of God placed in a subordinate situation for reasons that only the creator could explain. Helping them was a missionary effort for him. Their souls had to be saved. Although he could not change the social status of slaves, he could and did display Christian decency to those whose lot it was to be in bondage. And the whole book's been written about this. And uh, if we have time at the end, we'll actually see a stained glass window that was put up in a church in Roanoke, Virginia in 1906. It's in a black church, and it's a, it's a stained glass window honoring the life and memory of Stonewall Jackson because the pastor of that church, his parents, had been students in the Sunday school. And he, he, and he is not alone. He had a phenomenal legacy in the black former slave community in Lexington, Virginia. So no matter what's said about him today, those who lived and knew him as black people, as slaves, as former slaves, had high regard for him and highly respected him. Uh, slide 14, we're on that, so you can stay there, okay. So he begins looking for another wife. Um, he had met another girl who's lived from North Carolina, and he goes, he writes her a letter, she and her sister giggle when they get the letter, like, oh, you know, this, this old, old Tom Fool was sending you a letter, but he just shows up in North Carolina for a visit and actually goes well, and then uh, he brings Anna back, and they're married. You can go, let's see, where are we at? Um, you can, I guess to stay on that slide for now. Uh, his wife said that she'd never marry a Democrat, a widower, or a soldier, and she ended up doing all three. Um, obviously, Democrats are a bit different than they are today. Um, so this is Anna and his daughter, Julia, who he will only meet once in his life because he dies when she's only five months old. Um, uh, but anyway, so Anna brings a, a light back into his life again. And um, another interesting story of him as a deacon uh, at the, in the Presbyterian Church at this time period, he's going to two services. He's teaching a young men's class in the morning. He's teaching the black Sunday school in the afternoon. He's also a deacon. And it says he ran the diaconate with a firm grip. A brother deacon was not at one of the monthly meetings, and he met him on the street. He said, we missed you last night. He said, I had another engagement. And he said, how could you have another engagement when you were already engaged at that hour to attend to the Lord's business? And no deacon, the deacon could never offer a good excuse after that. You know, you've got commitments, and you're in the church leadership. You need to be there. And he was. Um, they do have a little girl named Mary who also dies after a month. And it says the loss of two children seemed to make him especially fond of children. 
He had a tender spot in his heart. He actually wrote to a friend after his daughter died, and she, this, his, his friend had also lost a child, and he said, did you ever think, my dear Grace, that most of the people who have died and gone to heaven are little children? So that is, that is the tough guy, the guy whose monument's getting knocked down, the guy who's just this evil person. Um, this is the person who he is before there's a war, before he knows he's supposed to be fighting for which side or the other. In 1859, slide 15, he buys a house in Lexington. This will be the only home he ever owns. It's still open for, for tours, at least it was years ago when we were down there. Uh, the domestic life, home married life, uh, brings a side of him out that nobody else will ever see. Um, he likes to have practical jokes. He would jump out behind the door one day with his sword and scared his wife half to death. Um, but then he became suddenly dropped that and became the guy who's saving his wife from the guy with the sword. Um, he, would ha- he called her my sunshine, my Esposita. Uh, he picked up Spanish when he was in Mexico. And um, they, just, they just had a wonderful, happy home together. Uh, there, there were a few slaves that she brought into the marriage. There were a few slaves that he bought because these people had said, would you please buy me so you can you rescue me from the bondage that I'm in? So he buys them and gives them a good home there, one of whom said, if you can buy me, I'll earn my freedom. And, and so there's a, a complicated relationship, but a, but a relationship none the same. Um, in 1859, the same year he buys his home, John Brown leads a rebellion in Harpers Ferry, Virginia, and uh, John uh, uh, Jackson and his, his soldiers, his, his cadets from VMI, are called to be there at Brown's execution for treason. And he's standing there, and he's, he writes to his wife. He gives her all the details. He's just a few feet away from the gallows, and he said, I don't believe that man's a Christian. He doesn't want a, uh, he doesn't want a, a, a preacher there up on the gallows. And he said, but I prayed for his soul as, as he was about to be hung. War is coming. Lincoln's elected in 1860, and we think in, in 2024 we're facing a tumultuous election. The election of 1860 was highly tumultuous. There were four people running. Lincoln won with less than 40% of the vote. Not a single southern state voted for him, and it was very, very fractious. And a whole not my president sort of thing. That's the way the South felt. Um, and uh, in 1860, December of 18, he's elected in, in November of 1860. December of 1860, South Carolina leaves the Union, and um, there's a lot of concern. Um, Jackson calls for a prayer meeting. He said, we're, we're in troublous times. But he says, why should Christians be disturbed about the, dis- the dissolution of the Union? It can only come by God's permission and will only be permitted if it's for his people's good. Because doesn't he say all things work together for good to those who love God? I can't see how we should be distressed about such things, whatever their consequences. But still, he had a desire to pray. And he says, concerns, he, he writes to his pastor, and he says, if the, if the federal government will persist and the measures they're now threatening, there must be war. It is painful to discover with what unconcern they speak of war and threaten it. They seem to not know what its horrors are. I have had an opportunity of knowing enough on the subject to make me fear war as the sum of all evils. But perhaps we as God's people can pray, and in prayer God may turn war away. Um, and so a, a, uh, a prayer meeting is called for January 4th. And, and, and this, is, this is 1860. This is months before the war starts. And Jackson says, I am strong for the Union at the present, and if things become worse, I hope to continue so. And this is true for most of the people in Virginia. They felt that his pastor will say, like, we shouldn't burn down, we shouldn't burn down the barn to get rid of the rats. That was the analogy he made. Let's destroy the nation to deal with the problems. Um, there's a riot in Lexington in, on April 13th of 1861 because there is a strong push by a few rabble-rouser people who want to have, for, have Virginia secede from the Union. But almost everybody in Lexington says this is a bad idea. We need to stay with the Union. Um, 
And within days, and, and Jackson's pastor is out there saying, like, no, we need to stay with the Union. We cannot break away from the Union. But when President Lincoln calls for 75,000 soldiers to go fight against the other southern states, that was like flipping a switch. Everybody, he said, people who were, would have died for the flag one day were ready to shoot it the next. And nobody had to make any speeches. Nobody had to make any arguments. Um, but again, the loyalty in the sense of, like, now we've got to fight. Do we fight the federal government? No, we fight our neighbors. And they were in a really, really hard position. And uh, so this is, this, is, this is where they were. And uh, so anyway, war's declared. And uh, he's hoping that he can have one more Sunday at church, um, Jackson, that is, uh, because it's communion Sunday. But he gets orders that they need to march out the next morning. And uh, so he, he had hoped to have one last Sunday at church, April 21st. But instead, he went to the college to make preparations. He went back home. Uh, he reads Second Corinthians 5 with his wife, Anna. They kneel and pray for peace, if possible. And she said his voice was so choked with the emotion he could scarcely utter the words. He hugs her goodbye, and then he leaves his home, and he never returns. So just briefly to summarize some of his experience in war, uh, he, that part of his life's a little bit better known. He is a phenomenal leader. Um, he picks up his nickname, Stonewall, because in the first battle of Bull Run there in Virginia, he's fearless. Everybody else is running away, and he's just standing there. And uh, one of the other generals says, there stands Jackson like a stone wall, rally behind the Virginians. And uh, he survives the battle as he will survive battles for several years, very thick and, and, and intense battles. But he says, my religious belief teaches me to feel as safe in battle as in bed. God has fixed the time for my death. I do not concern myself about that, but to be always ready, no matter when it may overtake me. His skill in defending um, the, uh, yeah, thank you for that. His skill in defending uh, Virginia and the Shenandoah Valley, basically the strip along 81, if you drive that part, that's the breadbasket of the Confederacy. And if they can hold that, then they can keep feeding their army. And it's also a corridor, as it is today, up and down the, uh, the north-south route there. And so he, that is where he makes his mark and his, his reputation. And he's all in. When he's a soldier, he's all in. He said he, you know, They said said it seemed like he was everywhere and nowhere all at the same time. You just never knew where he was going to pop up. Um, And his men loved him dearly. So let's see. Go to slide 18. Where are we at there? Okay. Um, You'll notice uh, just the kind of person he is. uh, He's in Winchester, Virginia, and somebody asked him if they sit for a picture, which he does, but then he notices the button's gone. So he actually, while he's wearing his coat, he sews his button on it. One of his buttons is, is crooked there. Just to show the kind of humble, down-to-earth sort of a guy that he is. Um, he's not pretentious. He's not, you know, highfalutin kind of a person. Uh, he's, he, he puts a lot of Christians on his staff because he believes that that is very important. Um, war does mean separation from his, his wife, however. Just a few days after the Battle of Antietam, he writes to her. He says, darling, my heart turns to you with a love so great that pain flows. You can't understand this, my beautiful, bright-eyed, sunny-hearted princess. Your face is the sweetest face in all the world, mirroring all that is pure and unselfish. He said, I must fight and plan and hope, and you must pray. Pray for a realization of all our beautiful dreams, sitting beside our own hearthstone in our own home. You and I, you my goddess of devotion, and I your devoted slave. May God in his mercy spare my life and make it worthy of you. In the beginning of 1863, you can go ahead to the next slide there. Uh, very, very once in a while, uh, they're able to get together during the war. Very, very little do they see each other. Uh, but in, in, in April of 1863, uh, there, he's down near the Fredericksburg, Virginia area, and his wife's able to come. It's safe enough for her to come. And by that time, he's got a five-month-old little girl. 
And he, he sees they're, they're together for nine days. This is the only time he'll ever see his little girl. Um, and uh, his wife says that uh, she, he holds this little girl for the first and only time. He was so afraid. It was raining. He was afraid to pick her up with his wet coat. Uh, but he quickly took that off and just held her, caressed her with the tenderest affection. During the whole of his short visit, he rarely had her out of her arms. And um, he would often go to her cradle and gaze on her face and said he almost felt like she was an angel in her innocence and purity. Okay, next slide there. Um, this is his horse. You can go to VMI and see his horse. His horse actually lived to be 36 years old and survived Jackson by almost 23 years. Uh, his soldiers absolutely loved him, and I think this is one of the great... When, his, when he was killed, and we'll get to that in a second, uh, when he was killed, um, it was a devastating loss militarily for the South, but also for the morale because of the character and the leadership and the just phenomenal success that he had. And uh, it's, it's interesting that the North, you know, there were various Christians throughout the, the country at that time, but the North had already had so much liberal Christianity soaking in that there was, the South really did have much more of an evangelical presence. And so it's a, it's a conundrum. It's, a, it's like, how is it that you have this, this dichotomy where it, that so many godly people were in the South, so many godly generals? Um, but that's, we can't really get into that now, but... Um, so his death, May 2nd, in the Battle of Chancellorsville, he is, uh, one of his theories in life was like you hit and you hit hard, and if you're going to be defeated, you find a way to turn it into a success. And if you've got success, don't stop. Keep driving and driving and driving and driving because that's how you win a war. So he has this phenomenal victory at the Battle of Chancellorsville. He marches his men 13 miles surprises. You know, when your army is lined up like this, you know, if, as long as you're facing the enemy this way, it's great. But if you get faced this way, you can just get plowed, plowed through the side. And so Jackson is able to get his men turned around, and they attack the Union soldiers like this, and they run for three miles, and it's just a phenomenal surprise, a phenomenal success. He wants to follow that up later in the evening. So around 9 o'clock, the shooting stops, and he rides out to do some scouting, but on his way back, his men don't. It's confusing, and his men, some men from North Carolina shoot, and he's wounded. And he's sadly killed, uh, not directly, but he's mortally wounded. Go to the next slide there. He's shot with this ball, with a half-inch slug, uh, which is what they used, and there's his, his raincoat with a hole in it that I've seen down at Virginia Military Institute years ago. His left arm is shattered, and he has to have it amputated two inches below the shoulder. He seems to recover from that initially, but a few days later, pneumonia sets in, and so they call Anna, and they said she'd just been there two weeks before. And she called, they call Anna back, and they say, you know, we think he's dying. And he lingers for about ten days. Um, and... Robert E. Lee at the time says, you know, uh, thank God it's no worse. Um, he says, you've lost your left arm and I've lost my right because you're such an ally and an asset to me. But by May 7th, he's delirious. And his wife, he, his wife comes and he, he looks around the room and he says, I can see from the number of doctors that you think my condition is serious. But I thank God if it's his will that I'm ready to go. In his last days, he's often heard calling out orders. Where we slide, go ahead, slide. Uh, this, is, this is where his arm is buried. There's a monument to his arm uh, when it was buried down there in Virginia. Next slide. And this is that, his bed that he died in is still in that, uh, that little outbuilding there down between Richmond and Fredericksburg. Um, but this, this beautiful, he had always wished to die on Sunday, and God granted him that request. And uh, he's delirious, and he's still barking out commands and orders to, to soldiers who aren't even there. And he says, order A.P. Hill, one of his generals, to prepare for action as he's fading into eternity. He says, pass the infantry to the front. Tell Major Hawks. And then he stops. And then suddenly, 
a look comes over his face, and he says, with an expression almost as if of relief, let us cross over the river and rest under the shade of the trees. Almost as if sometimes some believers, it's almost like God gives you a glimpse of what's coming. You go to the next slide there. Um, and a, a modern-day artist has painted that picture into what he envisioned it might be like. You know, what a beautiful picture for a believer to die with those wor- words on your lips, to cross over the river and rest under the shade of the trees. There's a lot of eulogy for him at his death. Uh, even, even the federal government, uh, federal soldiers, uh, one of the, their leading soldiers said, I rejoice at his death because it's a benefit to our cause. Yet in my soldier's heart, I can't but see him as the best soldier of all this war, and I grieve his untimely end. And he's a, it's a devastating loss to, to North and to the, to the South and to those who respect him in the North. A couple just brief thoughts as we close on his legacy. The next slide there. So this is the stained glass window, and it's sure the Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church in Roanoke, Virginia. As, I know, as, of a, as of 2017, it was still there. This was put together in a black church by the son of people who had been students in his, uh, his slave's Sunday school class. And he broke the law, and he was in some danger for, it was, you were against the law to teach the slaves how to read at that time, before the war. And he didn't care. He said, these people need to read so they can read the Bible. And so this is a legacy that he's left that it may have changed in the past five or ten years as there's been more controversy. But up until even 10 or 15 years ago, he had a very, he was still highly respected in that specific area of Virginia. And um, I think we should listen to what people who knew him and people who lived through that time period thought rather than what, how it's interpreted today. Uh, slide 26. This is said about him several times. He was emphatically the black man's friend. This is said by pastors, and I would believe it was shared by other people. He never looked more earnest than when telling those poor people of the story of the redemption of the cross. Uh, he was sometimes subjected to taunts and scorns for the sake of those poor people that nobody cared for. And then this letter, except from a letter from the battle, after fatiguing day service, I remembered that I had failed to send you my contribution for our colored Sunday school and closed his $50. One more slide. Uh, trying to wrap up. So I won't get into that. I briefly touched on it. You know, wrestling with, like, what side do you pick when your federal government and your, and your state government are at war with each other? And you can see the quotes there. Um, his pastor said, forced to fight, I claim the poor right of choosing who to fight for. Necessity was laid upon me to rebel against Lincoln or rebel against my state. Um, and he says, the pastor says, the leading men of this country are thoroughly corrupt, and we are to have another fearful confirmation of the doctrine of human depravity. And so much more to be said. But it was not an easy decision. And I think if we make it a black and white thing today, then we're not really taking the real matters into account. One more, a couple more. How are we at? Okay. This is his sister, Laura, that he tries to win for, for Christ. But um, she says, news of his death depresses me, but I'd rather see, see him dead than be uh, leading the rebel army. Uh, previously, he said, oh, sister, drop your infidel books. Come lead a happy life and die a happy death. Um, and he goes and he gives her the gospel over and over again. He said, you used to follow Christ. You know, please follow him again. There's no hope, and there's, I'm afraid you're in danger of punishment. Uh, but he said, I would regret to leave you unconverted if I were to die early, but his will and not mine be done. Yes, rather than willfully violate the known will of God, I will forfeit my life. So please drop your infidel books, lead a happy life, and die a happy death. Um, and one, I think there's one right just to mention this briefly, there was a, a huge revival that swept through his army and some of the other Confederate armies. Uh, the gospel really took root, and there were um, a lot to be said about that. 
There's actually a book called Jackson and the Preachers. Um, he, he made a theologian his chief of staff. A couple final quotes. Uh, Jackson repeatedly told his soldiers, never take counsel of your fears. No place for fear exists if faith is strong. He demanded the impossible of his men for good reason. With God's abiding help, nothing was impossible. So I think that's a good quote for us. Never take counsel from your fears. When your fears are saying, you can't do this, you shouldn't do this, what, what will happen if you do that? He said, no, what's the right thing to do? Don't listen to your fears when you're making a decision. And it's, I, it's good for me to hear, and I think it's good for all of us to hear. 20 years after the war, uh, one of his former students said he was indeed a soldier of the cross. And with that, our time is up, and we will close. Father, I thank you for this uh, life that's been lived, lived well, and I pray that we in our own confusing times as we face serious threats and violence or persecution, or we don't know what exactly is happening in our country right now, that we would go back and read some of the things that people in this time period wrote and the struggles that they had as they tried to process what was right and wrong and what you wanted them to do. And so I thank you that uh, you, don't, you don't judge us the way society judges us. You judge us by the blood of Christ, and we're accepted in the beloved. And so we thank you that we look forward to seeing men like Jackson, his wife, and many other godly people who have gone before us as we look forward to being reunited with them and with you in the coming years. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.